0: Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're to the Art of War on the firm Network. The management of savagery. The world of Muhammad Hassan Khalil al-Hakim. Welcome to the Art of War gaming on the Ear Verm network. I am your host, Yagama Lark, and I'm coming to you today to kick off this new series that I'm very excited for. And today we're going to be talking about the world of Muhammad Hassan Khalil Al-Hakim. But before we get into that, I have a couple of things to touch on. First off, I'm recording this in the very wee hours of the first day of spring. So let me be the first one to wish you all a happy beginning of spring and hopefully uh, a beginning of of the start of warmer weather. Now, I do realize that this will be coming out about a week and a half after I record this, but just know that as of the time of recording it, I wished you a happy first day of spring. In addition to that, I'm super stoked. I got the vaccine recently, and I don't want to drone too much on about it, but I am stoked to be able to start doing some Wargaming around April 15th. So after that point, I'll be able to start talking about some live applications of the lessons that we go through during the week, because I'll actually be able to play Warhammer and Bellegarth against folks. So I'll have some fresh stories for y'all. Look forward to that. The next thing I want to say is that Our editor works so hard for this show. I don't know if you guys know this, but our editor is my wife. And not only does she work a full-time job, but she also edits this podcast. And considering that our episodes are anywhere between an hour to two hours, that's quite a bit of work. In addition, she has made up all of the meme templates, the stickers that we send out, and a lot of the other projects that you kind of have come to know as The Art of Wargaming. All of the, the cover photos for our seasons, she put those together. She's a, a wizard at everything. So if you get a chance, drop her a line and, and say thank you because this show could not happen to the quality that it does without her. Uh, I'm sure that I could still put out something, something choppy and full of ums and uh, and what's and things. Those wonderful little phrases that she cuts out when she can. So again, Big thanks to my wife and editor. I'm sure she'll be hearing this, and I appreciate you, and I know the listeners do too. The next exciting thing that I wanted to tell you all about is that we are going to be opening up guest slots in the future. As you know, our dear Sir Thumbs will not be joining us on a consistent basis for a while as he is on sabbatical. So I know that you all probably enjoy listening to me drone on and on and on, but. break up the scenery a little bit we're going to be having some guest people on and i'm super stoked about this because it'll be some fresh voices some fresh opinions every single week and the way it'll run is we'll have this nice little half an hour section and uh basically just talk about what we've read and what's going on so i'm excited to share this with y'all and and hopefully we can get in some new diverse opinions and perspectives on these uh these subjects that we study so finally Before we start actually getting into what this episode is about, I wanted to kind of outline the fact that this is a very difficult book to work through in the current age. Most of the other books we've covered are at least 200 years old, which is to say that the battles that were fought and the the sides that were drawn are ancient. You know, none of us has a dog, and whether or not Rome or Carthage did this, that, or the other thing, that's just history. There's nothing overly personal about it to us. The material that we're studying now has been written very recently and is involved in a lot of the conflicts that uh, many of us are, of our listeners will be familiar with. So this material comes with particular sensitivity because uh, I'm trying to be respectful of uh, obviously both sides of the coin. I mean obviously, let me just say point blank, the show does not support terrorism or anybody that partakes of terrorism, but in studying the tactics we might be able to better understand what's going on here so i'm going to attempt to approach this material with caution and respect uh, but just know that in in, in general this one is going to be kind of hard to remain impartial on so uh, bear with me as we get through this so before we also before we get started i wanted to kind of give you guys a heads up on the other books that i'm going to be consulting for this particular uh, episode or this particular series. Of course, we're going to be doing management of savagery, but within the same book, there is a new strategy for resisting the occupier, and I'm going to be drawing heavily from that as well. In addition to those uh, two uh, essays, I suppose, I'm also going to be using Field Manual 7 98, Low Intensity Conflict, Field Manual 90 8. Counter guerrilla operations, and then a book called Counterinsurgency Warfare by David Galula. The idea here is to present both sides of the coin because we're dealing with asymmetric warfare. Within this, there are strengths and weaknesses to both sides, uh, whichever side they're on. So, throughout the course of this series, we're going to be examining not just what the insurgent doctrine is, but also what the counterinsurgent doctrine is uh, regarding what we're talking about. And in doing this, I hope to be able to draw worthwhile comparisons and uh, give good lessons for anybody, because a lot of us are likely to be found on both sides of this at one point or another, whether or not you play uh, an intellectual wargaming or a form of physical wargaming, you're probably going to be on the small side and the large side, whatever way it shakes out. So it's good to understand that there are strengths and weaknesses to playing both sides of this. And in an uncharacteristically short introduction, I believe that it uh, is time to get on to our next section. So, to frame the world of Muhammad Hassan Khalil al-Hakim, I think it is necessary to first talk about the history of the Arab world. (laughs) To understand the current geopolitical context and and kind of cultural thing that we're dealing with in West Asia right now it is important to understand the history from which this all comes because nothing exists in a vacuum as i'm sure you all know and so it is good to uh, like have a framing work of of who we're talking about and what kind of world we're, we're dealing with because as i've looked at many of our listeners come from places outside the Arab world, and perhaps are unfamiliar with what all that entails. So, let's go over it in brief, because I I have to let you know, this is not a brief topic. I took several years' worth of classes on this subject at the university here in town, so believe me when I say that this short section in this introduction does not do uh, Arab history justice. There is so much more and so much rich history there that I absolutely recommend that you go and research some of these topics yourself, because there, there is a lot to learn there. And it's a good read. It's a good read, all of it. So please bear in mind that this is the briefest of introductions and that it by no means encapsulates the entirety of Arab history or culture. First off, there are between 400 and 420 or more million Arabs worldwide. Many of them live in the 22 member states of the Arab League, and these states uh, are all across West Asia, Northern Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Western Indian Ocean. Of course, these are the ar- areas that we would tip- or like stereotypically think of as Arab. They're a part of a, a Pan-Arab League, much like you have the EU or NAFTA. They're a group of folks who are working together. So most Arabs are Muslim. Of course, they are also a diverse ethnicity. And so you have Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, uh, Jewish persons, atheists amongst the Arab population. Because of course, just because you come from a certain ethnicity doesn't guarantee that you're a part of religion. That being said, statistically, most Arabs are Muslim. That being said, uh, I wanna do a little bit of trivia here. Only 20% of Muslims are Arab. I want you to guess real quick in your mind. We're gonna do a little game. So picture in your mind the country that you think has the highest Arab, or sorry, the highest Muslim population. I'll give you a second to get that in your mind. All right. I am betting that you did not guess Indonesia because Indonesia is actually the country in the world with the largest Muslim population. And of course, the majority of Indonesians are not ethnically Arab. So that's, that's a piece of information that I thought was interesting and I thought might share. One more bit of trivia. I want you to picture in your head the country that you think has the largest Arab population. So that's the, the country that has the most people of the Arab ethnicity in it. Okay, get that country in your mind, picture it clearly. Now, did you guess Brazil? I imagine you didn't. And this is because the stereotype obviously doesn't fit reality. All of these populations are massively diverse and trying to pigeonhole them into one place or another doesn't really work. So this is a way for me to kind of banish your expectations, to banish your preconceived notions of what we're going to be talking about here, because there's a lot of ideas that I at least hear circulating in the Western world that don't really apply to reality. So let's define Arab. What is an Arab? The old definition from way back in the when, would have been the nomadic and settled people from the Arabian Peninsula, the Syrian desert, and lower Mesopotamia. So that's a, a fairly wide swath of land, likely a lot of different tribes and ethnicities that were living in that area at the time, but they were just all kind of lumped into Arab. Now our first historical mention of Arabs uh, is found in the mid 9th century BCE. And it appears that they were under the vassalage of the Neo-Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian, Achaemenid, Seleucid, and Parthian empires. So they weren't necessarily at war with anybody, but that area that they kind of wandered in or were settled in was often in control of these various empires that were there. So that was the old definition. That is what people used to define Arab as. Currently, the Pan-Arab definition of Arab is a person whose native region forms the Arab world due to the spread of Arabs and the Arabic language during the early Muslim conquests of the 7th and 8th centuries and the subsequent Arabization of the population. So, of course, the, the areas that we think of as being traditionally Arab, this is why they are that. You had these uh, Muslim conquests that came immediately, uh, like during uh, the Prophet Muhammad's lifetime and after the Prophet Muhammad's lifetime that expanded uh, the Arab world into a fairly large empire, actually one of the largest land empires that has ever existed on this planet. Those areas, the people from them are now called Arab. So that is the, the kind of briefest of definitions and ideas about who the Arabs are. So I want to go all the way back to the Islamic Golden Age, because this is something that I feel like needs to be talked about. A lot of people do not understand the implications and what what it meant for Western civilization that the Islamic Golden Age happened at all. This Golden Age began during the reign of the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid. And this was He ruled between 786 and 809, the current era. And what he did was he inaugurated the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, which at the time was the world's largest city. Now what this House of Wisdom was, was that he reached out all over the world, anywhere that the that they could have influence. And he brought under their own will, this wasn't a, a forced subjugation thing, but he invited all sorts of people from all over the world to come and contribute. So we're talking scholars, mathematicians, artists, philosophers, the whole gambit of what you could consider culture He invited to Baghdad so that they could collaborate together. Now, I said that the Arab empires controlled uh, one of the largest areas of land in history. Now, when we're talking about that, let me give you uh, kind of a framework. In the west, it reached to southern France and to China in the east. In the north, Anatolia, and the most southern area was down in the Sudan. So we're talking a very large area that was historically hard to control. For other, for other empires. So that in of itself is fairly impressive. So this golden age that I'm gonna go over kind of the, the reasons for it and the benefits of it here in a second, but it ended with the collapse of the Abbasid Caliphate due to Mongol invasions and the siege of Baghdad, traditionally in 1258. Now there are some scholarly uh, theories that move those dates around, the beginning and the end of the Islamic golden age. But everybody can agree that it absolutely happened and it was centered around Baghdad. Just to go over some, some background information real quick, the caliphates of uh, the Islamic empires were kind of like the dynasties. All right, so, uh, and there were, there were actually some, sometimes they were overarching over the entirety of that land area. Sometimes there were a couple of different caliphates that ruled in different areas. So think about a caliphate and a caliph uh, as both a, a dynasty and a, a king. It would be the, a very rough definition there. There are many reasons for the beginning of a golden age, uh, but a lot of the times there's there's a confluence of things that come together to produce a flowering of culture. And of course, these have happened all over the world. Mesoamerica, uh, Western Europe, China, like everywhere has that exists and has a civilization has had a golden age at some time or another. In this particular instance, the, the factors that led into this golden age, primarily the first one was religious influence. Islam puts a massive emphasis on education and on making sure that you are continuing to learn and continuing to spread knowledge. And, and they see it as a divine calling in order to do this. And so of course that religious influence would lead to an expansion of thought and a welcoming of new ideas into this, into this place, into the house of wisdom. The second contributing factor was government sponsorship. And this seems to be a commonality across all golden ages, the Renaissance and and this one as well, the Islamic golden age. So you had the government who was actively paying people to contribute in this way, paying them to come, paying them to live there, of course, paying them any like so that they could save and grow some sort of wealth. The government was involved in this. And so with that, that excess of uh, funding And with that ability to kind of pursue whatever they needed to this of course led to a massive flowering of knowledge which was incredibly beneficial the third contribution was the diversity of which they drew from you had people from the north the west the south the east you had folks who spoke spoke dozens of different languages all working together under the same roof and working for the the common goal of expanding the knowledge of the time. And that in of itself was exciting enough, but all of these contributions were, were pivotal to the amount of progress made during that time. Now, it was mostly Arab scientists, Arab engineers, or Arab uh, medical practitioners that made those advances, that were credited with them, but without the house of wisdom and this expansion of knowledge and culture, those advancements would not nearly, have been nearly as easy, I suppose. So the diverse contributions, a huge thing. And lastly, there was a new technology at the time imported from China that made all of this possible and expanded the ability of humanity to record information and knowledge. And this was paper. We don't really think about paper in the current age. I I take notes on paper every single day, print out more notes, I read on paper. We use it for tax forms, bills, contracts literally everything in the present age but before about this time paper didn't exist and there were a lot of poorer supplements for it Uh, vellum papyrus cuneiform tablets all of these had their strengths and weaknesses but they paled in comparison to the usefulness of paper because of course paper is easy to manufacture you don't have to uh, wait a bunch of time or have a lot of different materials that are going into it. Paper is, is fairly easy to produce and, of course, ship. It is less crumbly than papyrus is. And papyrus was a, a well-known staple of this particular region. But of course, papyrus, it just falls apart after a certain amount of time. And so papyrus texts had to be scribed and rescribed and rescribed in order for that information to be preserved. Not so with paper. It was much easier uh, to use paper because it's far less crumbly, therefore it's gonna stick around. lot longer and the final thing that makes paper so important is that it can absorb ink again this is special nothing else could have done this at the time when you put ink on something like vellum or papyrus it was just sort of on the surface so if you smudged at it or got like a little bit of water on there it could easily run easily smear and easily destroy whatever that work was Paper, on the other hand, absorbs the ink straight into it, so you have a far better preservation of the information actually on the page. So this combination of factors, the fact that it's easier to manufacture, therefore there's more of it and more people can use it, less crumbly than papyrus and of course can absorb ink, led to the fact that so much knowledge could now be put into literate form and preserved that way. So these were the reasons for the Golden Age. Now there are a lot of other combining factors of course, but those were the four big ones that made this possible. So I've been sitting here talking about this Golden Age quite a bit and what contributed to it and the size of it and the history and some of that. But what were the benefits of it? What things came of this flowering of knowledge and culture? The first one, and this is something that those of us from America and Europe should be especially thankful for, is that Endangered literature was pre- preserved during this time. The area of history that we refer to as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages saw a massive increase in illiteracy, poor maintenance of, of different books and texts, and, of course, the burnings and ignorance that came with those times. So a lot of the old works, a lot of, like the Socrates, other ancient Greek works, the ancient Roman writings, a lot of that was destroyed inside of Europe or lost or or just kind of forgotten about. So what the Islamic golden age enabled was that all of those works Aristotle, Plato, everyone that we have come to associate with with kind of the flowering of the renaissance in particular, if you've noticed, the renaissance is basically just Greek and Roman culture reimagined. Even the way that the sculptures are done are extremely within that style. Part of the emphasis on that was this influx of philosophy and knowledge. And not just that, a lot of the Arabic philosophy influenced Europe as well at that time. So, this endangered literature and this expansion upon it by philosophers and historians, it came back to Europe and and absolutely fueled the Renaissance. For that fact alone, we should be thankful. A lot of other things came of this Golden Age as well. One of the best ones for me, I used to be a math teacher, so of course this one sticks out to me. Many of you might actually resent uh, this particular thing, but math made massive advances during the Islamic Golden Age. Algebra, think about that word. That's an Arabic word, that hasn't even been made into anything else. Algebra is an Arabic concept. Calculus, the idea of finding points within like a moving system, that was first theorized by Arab mathematicians. And the law of sines, if you know anything about trigonometry, of course, the Pythag- Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, only works for right-sided triangles. The law of sines allows you to find the angle and side of just about any triangle, regardless of whether or not it is right, isosceles, or whatever. So this, and again, was a huge advancement. And this was done without calculators. When I was in school and when I was teaching math, I never had to do the law of science by hand. That would take a while. So these guys who figured this out absolutely had the time and funding in order to do so. So of course those contribute massively. Current Modern engineering as we know it would not be possible without trigonometry, it just wouldn't. So this advancement was huge. They also contributed in a lot of other areas of science. The first instance of what could be called the scientific method, and that of course is having an idea, forming a hypothesis, conducting trials, and then coming to conclusions and perhaps trying to recreate it. What we know as the scientific method was first used during this time period by Arabic scientists. They also contributed massively to the theories of astronomy and how the different bodies move through the spheres and how their orbits interact with one another. This was all done during this time period. And chemistry, a lot of elements and certain acids were discovered by the chemists during this time period. A lot of them were transitioning the ideas of alchemy into a hard science. And this was one of the first times you see that happening in history. And lastly, one of the coolest things in my mind that was achieved during this Islamic Golden Age was the quality of public health care that was offered to the folks. The main hospitals there in Baghdad were forbidden to refuse anyone regardless of whether or not they could pay. And this is one of the first times you hear about that happening happening in the, in the course of history before and after this particular uh, flowering of, of civilization because uh, mostly it was just the rich or the upper middle class throughout most of history that were able to get proper medical care. But within Baghdad, anybody who needed it, could get it. And they weren't just getting it from a quack either. There was a licensing system between doctors. You had to serve a certain amount of time and prove that you had a certain amount of knowledge before you could become any kind of doctor. I had to serve as basically an intern for a while, like a med student, to be able to make sure that you learned it and to have a teacher that could watch you and make sure you weren't going to kill anybody. This was huge. Uh, Nowhere did you see this even in, in Europe until recently in terms of like history. So this was huge. You never think about hearing about this in the classical period. The other thing that was really cool about this was pharmacy regulations. One of the horror stories that I hear about the early American West, for instance, is that you could walk around selling anything and call it something else the whole idea of a snake oil salesman coming in and offering some sort of miracle tonic that can make you grow hair and give you a deeper voice or make you more attractive to people and it turned out that it's just urine and ink mixed inside a bottle or worse worse it could be arsenic it could be mercury belladonna any other sort of poison uh, because nobody knew there was no sort of regulation for it and this was the way in Europe for the longest time as well but here there were folks that went around and made sure That you were selling what you said you were selling and not just that but that what you were selling was not harmful to people that is amazing in of itself like uh, again that kind of organization doesn't really exist in in most of the rest of the world until only recently and lastly and perhaps more most impressive about this islamic golden age was that they first started to understand what cancer was and started to understand the relationship between the tumors and the rest of the body. There was a surgeon during this time period who performed the very first successful surgery on breast cancer, on a breast cancer tumor, removed it, saved a woman's life, and did so successfully. This was this was at a time before germ theory. This was at a time before we understood microbiotic functions. And this guy figured out that... Uh, that that particular lump was causing problems and might cause death, and found out how to remove it in its entirety. That is extremely impressive. It's impressive enough with modern technology, but with what was going on at the time, it's, it's honestly even more impressive. So again, I highly recommend that any of you that are interested, pick up a book. In fact, Horani's A History of the Arabs is, is a fantastic read. You're not going to find a more inclusive and authoritative text on Arabic history than Hurani's History of the Arab Peoples. So I highly recommend that. I have read it several times. And again, what I have mentioned here is just a fraction of what is in that book, just a fraction of what there is to be known. So again, fascinating history of a fascinating people. I highly recommend that you read more on it uh, because I, I absolutely do not have enough time, even within the six months, to do this particular subject justice. So with that, with a a kind of an understanding of what the Arab world is, what we mean when we say Arab, and kind of the history that contributed to the current age, it's time to move into our next section on the nature of insurgency. It goes without saying, but I do feel the need to reiterate that by far, most Arabs and most Muslims are peaceful people who just want to go about their lives and raise their families in peace and prosperity, much like the rest of us, the majority of Christians, the majority of Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, the whole gambit, the majority of us just want those things to be able to live in peace and prosperity and raise our families in safety. So I do not want the false equivalency to occur between Arabs and terrorists or Muslims and terrorists, because that absolutely is not true. There are terrorists within any organization. Heck, there's even Buddhist terrorists. How, how zany is that? So understand that any creed, that any dogma or religion can be corrupted for man's own use, but that at it's very core. Islam is a religion of peace. In fact, if you read the Quran and you read the surahs, there is a massive emphasis on peace being preferable to war. And if war is to be conducted, there are very strict regulations on how it is to be conducted. So again, I want you to understand and just state for the record that these two things are separate. That being said, a lot of the current troubles that the Arab world has with the West began around the time of World War I. So, of course, World War One was in full swing. The Axis and the Allies were at each other's throats, and most of Europe was transformed into a trench, a series of trench works. And the the dead still was was very damaging for all sides. But one of the places that things were going very well, one of the countries that was doing very well in the beginning of that war, was Turkey. You know, Turkey was fairly far removed. They weren't being attacked directly most of the time, and they could supply men and material to the war effort. So Turkey was actually doing quite well. So at this time, the Western powers were like, okay, we need to figure out how to get Turkey out of the picture. And they tried a landing, of course, that went absolutely terribly. So the idea of actually invading Turkey with a foreign army was off the table. It was just entirely too expensive in terms of men and material when you had the, the issues on the continent of Europe to deal with. So, of course, the, the idea was contrived to start an insurrection from within. Enter the Hussein McMahon correspondence. McMahon was a a British delegate who was in contact with Hussein, who was a prince. And there were 10 letters exchanged between July 1915 and March 1916. And within these letters, Hussein and McMahon were discussing the possibility of the Arabs rising up in revolt, against the Ottoman Turks, who were the the rulers of that area at the time, and didn't necessarily treat the Arabs all that well. Of course, the Arabs didn't want to go from one poor situation to another poor situation, so they asked for certain assurances. And one of the assurances given to them was that after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire was assured, they would be given a state in Palestine, that they would be given their own autonomous country in which to rule, because they hadn't had one for for the last several hundred years, the Arabs had been a part of one empire or the other, and so the idea of having their own homeland, their own country in which they could do what they wanted to do, was very appealing. So this results in the Arab revolt uh, that lasted between June 1916 and October 1918, and this crippled the ability of the Turks to perform in the war anymore, because they attacked all sorts of different rail lines, oil pipelines, convoys, they, because they were operating on guerrilla warfare from the desert. If any, anyone knows the history of Lawrence of Arabia, this was the activity going on throughout his story, where, where these guerrilla operations against various Turkish uh, supply lines and embattlements. So this was very successful. Turkey had to kind of pull itself out of the war and eventually the Ottoman Empire collapsed. So the second thing we need to talk about, because obviously that was successful. Second thing we need to talk about is the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So an ambassador from England, Sykes, and an ambassador from France, Picot, were in correspondence between November of 1915 and the 3rd of January, 1916. And what they were doing were drawing up plans to annex Western Asia. I mean, just to define, most of us would refer to Western Asia as the Middle East. But within all technicality, it is Western Asia. So even while the Arab revolt was occurring, even while the Arabs were working to take the Ottomans out of the war and what they thought was working toward their own ends of having an autonomous state, even behind all that, the lines were being drawn up for colonial powers to move in and take control the states that we know today in those areas Syria Iraq Iran India those were those lines were first drawn up by british and french people those were not lines that were drawn up by the peoples of those areas at all for instance take iraq there are three eth- ethnicities and three different groups within iraq who are anonymical to one another they do not like one another, they're downright hostile, they had a history of hostility. But when the colonial powers moved into that region, they said, all right, we're just gonna slam all these people together into their own country, and it's gonna go well. And the history of Iraq has been very, very tumultuous since that time. So these these pairings, these, these areas, obviously were not conducive to the people, and they weren't for the people, they were for the colonial powers. So this was a betrayal, a massive betrayal for the Arabs who had Uh, spent their own blood, had spent their own youth and other people trying to achieve this independence, it's a slap in the face that suddenly the whole area is now colonial. Nobody gets to rule their own land in that area. So that was a massive smack. The the other thing that really contributed to this, and there's a lot of other injustices that could be talked about between, of course, colonial powers and the folks that they aim to rule, but this one was a direct Kind of attack on a previous agreement and that was that in 1917 there was a thing called the balfour declaration and it was a unilateral support for the establishment of a jewish home in palestine the modern state that we know of is, is israel was founded or the idea for it was was going around this time so that very same area that was promised to the arabs was now being promised to the Jewish homeland, so the Arabs that lived there had to move, had to to leave their homes in order to facilitate this new state coming in. So between all of this, one can understand that there was a certain level of resentment toward the Western powers that began around this time. Now, it was focused toward Britain and France for the longest time. More recently, it's been focused more toward America because of our involvement in that area, but this was the beginning. Kind of the beginning of this of this uh, negative interaction between Western Asia and Western Europe and America. So now we're going to go into a little bit of a history of asymmetrical warfare, because as we've said, asymmetrical warfare differs in tactics and style to conventional warfare. Conventional warfare, you assume that both sides have roughly the same numbers and roughly the same technological capabilities. And so when they come together, it is mostly tactics and luck that decide who wins and who loses there. asymmetrical warfare is very different. You often have one side that is much more technologically advanced or has way more numbers against a side that is lacking in one or both of those things. That imbalance of power creates a whole new set for rules for that warfare, for the rules of engagement in that particular way. So tactical success for the smaller side, for the insurgency side, depends on having at least some of the following advantages. A technological advantage that cancels out numbers. So think about the uh, French at the Battle of Agincourt and where the the French, I'm sorry, the English at the Battle of Agincourt. The French knights were the preeminent form of military on the continent at that time. They were going against a smaller army but that smaller army was equipped with a new technology, the longbow. And the longbow absolutely devastated the previous nearly invincible French knights. And so in that way, the technological advantage canceled out numbers. Also think about the beginning of machine guns. Machine guns in, in World War I and a little bit before completely changed the way that the field was done because two people sitting in a pillbox could wipe out an entire battalion in a matter of minutes. So with these technologies, it absolutely unbalanced the field of war as well. The next next, uh, advantage that you would want to have would be that the enemy technological infrastructure has vulnerabilities. So think about that Arab revolt against the Turks. The vulnerabilities there was a lot of area of unprotected pipeline, a lot of areas that could not be patrolled uh, adequately. So supply convoys and different resources could be raided the technological infrastructure was vulnerable to being attacked and it was in a, in a very successful sort of way. Our next one would be training and tactics. So if you've got one side that has, they're just very good, their training and their tactics are superior to the other ones, they're going to do better. So think about the disparity of numbers between the Greeks, particularly the, uh, the Spartans and the Persians at the battle of Thermopylae. You had this massive army that came from this gigantic geographic area marching in to fight, it wasn't just 300 Spartans, there were more of them there, but the, the numeric dis- disparity was still fairly massive. But because of their training, there's very superior training, and their tactical know-how of using the, the gates of Thermopylae to narrow down the Persian forces, they were able to hang out for a, quite a long time. And, and without the, the little flanking maneuver that the Persians were able to perform, perhaps they could have held out indefinitely, because they had the training and tactics to do so in that situation. The next of these advantages is that the inferior power is operating in self-defense. The reason that this would be an advantage is that the international community has a lot more sympathy for somebody who is being attacked, especially a smaller force that is being attacked. And so that sympathy or that support that might come for the international community is vital to a lot of these insurgent operations. And so being in self-defense is also a good thing because you know the people, you know the language, you know the, the different pressure that's on different regions. And of course, you get the benefit of of being the victim in this particular case, of being invaded by an occupier that then you can appeal to world sympathy to help with. The last of these advantages would be the use of terrain to one's benefit. Think about the war in Vietnam, particularly American involvement in Vietnam. America had a massive army that was very technologically capable, and yet we lost the Vietnam War. And this was because of the use of terrain. The Viet Cong knew those jungles, knew those hills better than we ever could and set up networks of tunnels to be able to move quickly through them and and just have this surprise capability wherever they went. The use of terrain in that war was absolutely essential. So these advantages, you need to have at least one, if not more of these advantages to actually have a hope of being successful in in an asymmetrical situation. So the examples of this would be, you know, back in episode 19, we talked about the Battle of Trenton in the American Revolution. The American Revolution was all guerrilla warfare, was all asymmetric warfare, because the few times that the Americans attempted to stand against the British in the field, they were massacred because the British were far, far better drilled. They had a lot more experience. I mean, these redcoats came from campaigns all over the world. They were not newbies. They were not (laughs) uh, inexperienced in the art of war. And so when you met them head-on like that, the American colonists were massacred. Did I say that right? Whatever. So the Americans had to resort to hit-and-run tactics, attacking various supply depots, interrupting armies on the way to march, Snipers were extremely well employed here. And so the Americans, all throughout the course of their revolution, employed guerrilla tactics. Another good place that we have talked about this was in episode 31, uh, when we talked about the Battle of Sulmasalmi. And this, of course, happened in the Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union. Again, you had a massive disparity of forces. You had a massive Uh, differentiation and power capabilities, the Soviet Union anticipated just rolling over Finland, and they did not. Finland was able to fight back with extreme efficacy because of the fact that they were using the terrain to their advantage, and they were using a lot of these guerrilla tactics to their advantage. So these are some examples of how asymmetric warfare can look in terms of history. Now I want to go over a brief history of the of the word terrorism and what terrorism is, because this is a term that is thrown around a lot. But I think that the definitions and the various examples that can be given of this, it's an important thing to understand. And the word terrorist is not that old. Of course, the tactics that might be described as terrorist actions go back as far as human history does. As long as there's been asymmetrical warfare or oppressed populations, certain tactics that we would know or call terrorists these days have existed. But that word was first used, and it was first in French, terroriste. It was first used in 1794 against Robespierre during the Reign of Terror. So for those of you that are familiar with the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror was a time of lopping off the bourgeoisie's heads. You had a massive uprising from the lower class and middle class kind of scholars of France, and they overthrew the monarchy and started killing a whole lot of people. So Robespierre, the leader of that movement, was dubbed a terrorist for this reason. The modern tactics that are currently used by terrorists can be traced all the way back to the Sicari Zealots. Now, remember in episode 29, we covered the Battle of Masada. Those are the same Sicari Zealots as we're talking about here. The idea of training for a specific mission in a specific place using a specific technique. For instance, a lot of the Sicarians would come up with that curved dagger that gave them their name, practice on stabbing somebody in a public place and just blending back into the crowd. That was a technique that they honed over and over and over again until they could do it perfectly every single time. This is also used with current terrorist techniques. You don't have most terrorists just being like the James Bond of terrorists. You know, we, we picture James Bond as being the spy that can do absolutely everything, but the vast majority of covert operations even are specialized. You have people who can do various things contributing in a team. And it's the same thing with any of these uh, is Islamist groups. They have a lot of different people that are trained in very different ways for very specific jobs. Now, these tactics that we're speaking about that have existed all the way uh, back to the Sicarians, were heavily refined by the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Now this organization that is slightly differential from the Irish Republican army, which we now know today was established in 1858 and are well known for the 1881 Fenian dynamite campaign in which they used dynamite, of course, to attack and disrupt British operations in the area. This was the first, the first time that we see of the technique known as daisy chaining. Now, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan, our troops are extremely unfortunately familiar with this technique and it involves a series of explosives placed along a route of travel. And what the, the folks who are in charge of these explosives do is they wait until the convoy is well past that first one and until it hits that last one. And so you've got the majority of the convoy that is now within the blast zone for these various explosive devices and they set it up from the the front backwards. And so it can be devastating to a convoy of fully armored vehicles. Imagine how bad it was at the time of of the Fenian campaign when you didn't have (laughs) that kind of protection. They also developed a lot of the early IEDs or things that we would consider IEDs today. The inclusion of bits of shrapnel into a bomb, so we're talking BBs, nails, just shavings of, of metal, that was first introduced by the uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood as well. Now these early IEDs were also used during World War One as booby traps for the most part, as the Germans were falling back behind their lines, they would leave mines that have, had tripwires or grenades that had tripwires, or, or just kind of primed things in various locations that they knew would be searched, and this too, would be known as a, an early form of an IED. So these are kind of the tactics that we're dealing with this evolution of an idea of a very specific hit in a very specific place to disrupt the enemy as much as possible. But there's a lot of different types of terrorism and a lot of different definitions for what terrorism is. So I'm going to go over the six types of terrorism that are defined by the U S task force on disorders and terrorism. The first one is civil disorder. And this is collective violence interfering with peace, security, or normal f- function. So a, a massive uprising all over the place that completely interferes with shipping and normal function and the ability of people to go about their daily lives and be safe in it, that would be civil disorder. And this doesn't happen very much. Protests and and like marches and that sort of thing do not count as civil disorder. It has to be extremely widespread and, again, interfere with peace, security, or normal function. The second one is political terrorism. And this is violent criminal behavior designed to generate fear for political gain. So think about the early stages of the rise of Nazi Germany in which Hitler was putting out all sorts of propaganda, you know, saying that the Jews were evil and trying to take over the country and that the communists were coming and the communists were going to try to take over the country. There's a trend there. And that that all these, these enemies, the homosexuals, the intellectuals, that they were all enemies of the state and that the state needed to be empowered to get them. And so when the Reichstag was finally burned by the Nazi party and the blame was assigned on all of these other fringe groups, it was easy for that to result in the political gain of the Nazi party and also of, of Hitler. So political terrorism is kind of that idea. The third one is non-political terrorism. And this is conscious design to create fear for personal gain. So if a person is running a a terror campaign basically to boost their sales or to get themselves into a position of power, that could also be considered a form of terrorism. So depending on what motives you assign to Hitler during his rise to power, that could have been political or non-political terrorism. The fourth one is quasi-terrorism. So this is using techniques to cause terror for an immediate victim. It doesn't necessarily have to be planned out beforehand. So think about uh, somebody who's involved in a bank heist that goes very wrong, and then they take a hostage and threaten said hostage with death unless their demands are met. This is uh, quasi-terrorism because it's causing terror for the immediate victim, but it doesn't really have a motive outside of that. The fifth one is limited political terrorism. So this is terrorism for political or ideological motives that are not meant to seize control of the state. So there's other ones that we mentioned before, political terrorism and non-political terrorism. Both of those are designed to capture the state or to capture a certain amount of power within the state. Limited political terrorism is not that. So a lot of the terrorist campaigns that we think of as terrorist, would fall under this particular category. People blowing things up or shooting a bunch of people for purely ideological motives. They're not looking to take anything over. In fact, a lot of these folks, their attacks result in suicide either through design or through the process of being taken down, but it's still, that's still their motive, is to, is to just cause disruption for these means. And the sixth last form of terrorism is state terrorism. So state terrorism is using fear or oppression to rule your people. And there's a lot of examples of this throughout history, but state terrorism is the one that is they is—they're already in power. They're already there and they're using some form of coercive method to keep people in line or to make them act in a certain way. A lot of states throughout history could have been said to practice state terrorism. So these are our ideas here, we've gone over the history of the Arab world, the diversity that exists within Arabic culture, and the contributions that the Islamic Golden Age made, really, to world history. And then we talked about the three betrayals, the issues that occurred in the early early 20th century that have led to the current rise of resentment in that area of the world. And, conclusively, we spoke about asymmetric warfare, what it is, what it looks like, and a brief history of terrorism, which is, and of itself, a form of asymmetric warfare. And with all of this context in mind, we are now going to delve a little bit into the personal life of Muhammad Hassan Khalil al hakim Those of you who are following along at home with your own copy of these texts will likely have noticed that our author, Muhammad Hassan Khalil al-Hakim, is extremely eloquent. The man is capable of expressing ideas in complex yet understandable ways that are very practical for the battlefield. Most of the Islamic documents or Islamist documents that I have read deal mostly with dogma, They deal a lot with the moral failings of the West, describing the reasons why their doctrine is better, but they don't contain a whole lot of very useful strategy or tactical ideas. The books written by this author are not that way. They're extremely solid works on military theory and his contribution cannot be understated for the jihadist cause. So let's talk about our author real quick. He was Egyptian. But when his writings first came out, they thought him to be Jordanian, Tunisian, or perhaps multiple authors. And he joined the jihadist movement in 1979. He was arrested in connection with the assassination of Anwar Sadat, the leader of Egypt at that time, and was subsequently arrested in several different Arab countries. So he was not a a subtle man. He was extremely vocal with his involvement. He was usually uh, fairly at the center of things because of his ideas, so he ran into a lot of trouble, of course. His writings first appeared in 2004 and were published on the main al-Qaeda online magazine, South al-Jihad. Now, this is like the authoritative place for al-Qaeda to get its information out to its followers, so to have him published there means that he was considered by the al-Qaeda thinkers to be preeminent, that his words needed to be out there and heard and understood by other folks. I want to talk real quick about this name because if you're reading along in the text, you'll notice that the management of savagery was written by Abu Bakr Naji. And if you look forward in that text to see the other one that we're covering, a new strategy for overcoming the occupier, that one was written by Muhammad Khalil al Hakima. These were pen names. <laughs> These were pen names for the the fella I was just uh, talking about. He was very smart in trying to keep himself disconnected from his writings so that it was harder to find him and harder to accuse him of crimes. The current ISIL or ISIS tactics that have been seen in Syria and Northern Iraq are basically a play-by-play of the management of savagery. If you are familiar with this text and you have watched what has occurred in that area of the world over the last several years, then it is chilling how influential his ideas have been these various movements. Now the man was killed in a Pakistan airstrike 31st of October 2008 but his influence did not stop there. These writings are still very circulated and very well read within the Islamist community. Not much more is known about this guy. He's fairly enigmatic but these are the things that you need to know about him. He was extremely crafty, highly intelligent and very, very articulate. So even if you're not reading the book at home, understand that this was a intelligent, dangerous mind that we are dealing with here. So that's our show for today. I hope that it has been uh, useful to you and it provides good background and context for the text that we are going to be discussing for the next several months. And again, this application is for the asymmetrical situations that may exist on battlefields, in physical and intellectual wargaming. This is not to be used for anything else other than that. We do not support any sort of violence, actual violence against non consenting individuals. Because obviously, physical wargaming is violence, but everybody signed up for it. And I said, okay, hit me. We appreciate you listening in to The Art of Wargaming today. If you haven't had quite enough of The Art of Wargaming in your life, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, where I go through different spurts of being able to post memes. I'll have like some really good ideas for a couple of weeks, and then the old brain juices dry up for another couple of ones. So, uh, But I do like to post uh, informative and funny memes on there, so check that out if you're inclined. We have a a website, Tau War Gaming, that you can also go to, and then the email address that you can get to me at, whether you got questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, or even just want to chat, Artof War gaming podcast at gmail.com. And there's a lot of other good shows on our on our network. Please check out the other shows that are on the EarVerm network. You can find it at our main webpage there. I think for today, this has been Yagama Lark signing off.